Huahakea Miley is a Kanaka Maoli scholar and activist from Manawili, Oahu. He works as an assistant professor of indigenous politics in the Department of Political Science at the University of Toronto. Miley's research looks at the legal constraints and decolonial activism that marks the history of Hawaiian sovereignty. He's a practitioner of indigenous critical theory, feminist and queer theory, and an expert in settler colonialism and political economy. His upcoming book focuses on settler colonial capitalism and the gifts of sovereignty in Hawaii and investigates the formation of settler colonial capitalism alongside the gifts of sovereignty that seek to overturn that form of domination by assuming radical responsibility for balancing relationships with aina, or the land that feeds. In our conversation, he talks about the meanings of Mauna Kea, which is not only the tallest mountain in the world, but also more importantly, a place of worship and deep relationality for Kanaka Maoli that has been under threat for generations as a result of numerous telescope projects and the pursuit of profit through tourism. The struggle for Mauna Kea is a focal point of this interview for a number of reasons. Maile says that the state has shown it privileges the veneration of astronomy over the legally protected sacredness of indigenous Hawaiians' relationship to the place. And this is unequivocally because government funding, tourism, and settler colonial capital determine what counts as valuable. We talk about the Supreme Court decision regarding the degradation of Mauna Kea and how the analogy to allowing continued abuse, which was enshrined in that decision, reveals a desperate attachment to anthropocentric framing. Miley asks bluntly, why can't we accept that leveling peaks of mountains is inherently a violent act of desecration? This is difficult when one aspect of the struggle is this fact that the pop cultural trope of Hawaii as a popular refuge continues to draw people in, even during a pandemic. On this point, he describes how lockdown for a brief moment upended that cosmology and allowed indigenous Hawaiians to see what places like Honolulu Harbor, Waikiki, and others would look like as they begin to heal from the degradation caused by this influx of tourists. Another theme here is the idea that we should take pop cultural representation seriously, but perhaps not too seriously. We talk about South Park's reductive depiction of indigeneity in Hawaii and what it means to engage with the satirical representation of cultural appropriation itself. Miley insists that satire is not a metaphor and, quote, cannot be used metaphorically for decolonization. Ultimately, the conversation zooms out to think through the ways that state governments look to bureaucratize control of the land to further occupy and control indigenous sovereignty. In particular, the presence of the U.S. military in Hawaii is for Maile undoubtedly part of a broader process of territorial command by the settler colonial nation. He says that we need to start engaging with this in relation to the general need to slow down the pace of development in order to stave off climate change and recognize the ways in which Kanaka Maoli and other indigenous communities demonstrate an unwavering commitment to this reality. There are many moments, he says, where he's called upon to teach settlers using his particular expertise, but he still doesn't believe that there is reciprocity in these relationships a lot of the time. While he trusts the intelligence of scientists, for example, he doesn't feel that trust returned. And when his hospitality is met with hostility, it's hard to avoid taking a position of refusal. Refusal is maybe the overarching concept in this conversation. 
No, he says, is frequently the means through which indigenous peoples affirm a right to the land. And in this context, decolonization means acknowledging some degree of incommensurability. He doesn't believe, for example, that existing in relationship to the sacredness of the land or mastering what the sacred means can or even should be taught in the university. He sees this when he's asked to speak on behalf of other indigenous nations in Canada. Not only is this not an ethical practice for him, he points out that it ignores the extent to which indigenous politics is particular, not abstract, a fact that remains woefully misunderstood within settler colonial culture. The first thing I wanted to present you with um, is, you know, it's kind of odd, but of course, like I've been reading your work, so it's like I'm kind of quoting you back to you. Um, but there's this, there's this really uh, interesting, rich part of your your essay on this one South Park episode, <laughs> "Going Native," I guess is the title of the episode um, that I wanted to cite to start with. Okay, you know, you write. Indigeneity is marked through a racialized measure of authenticity whereby pronunciation essentializes indigenous identity. Um, the idea is to truly become or to be Kanaka Maoli, one cannot mispronounce Hawaii. Um, and it's the certainty over pronunciation and language that signifies performative howliness, a form of whiteness in which settlers arrogantly claim certainty over knowledge. Um, that just like, I mean, I'd like that to maybe be almost like an epigraph for the interview in the sense that like there's so much in that short quotation um, in terms of thinking about, I guess, what historically is called like a shiboleth, right? Like um, these these customs and, and often forms of phrasing and pronunciation that determine, um, you know, access to community and access to a place and to an identity, mm -hmm. you know, like this is something that I'm conscious all, all the time of like my, my white, I'm no, I'm never more conscious of my whiteness than when I've mispronounced things. Like I get so anxious. Mm. So, you know, your, your name, for example, you know, I'm nervous to attempt to pronounce it um, because it is not a name that I'm like used to saying, like, it's just not, um, something that uh, I routinely would would be asked to pronounce. Mm -hmm. So when I attempt to say Huwa Akea, I'm not even sure if that's your name, right? Like, so there's like, to me, there's so much in that quote for thinking about like identity, um, community, creating these sort of bonds. And like, you're teasing this out of a cartoon, right? Like this, this like, right. profound thing about cultural belonging versus appropriation. So I don't know if you wanted to speak to that at all, like, you know, from your position um, from, you know, at U University of Toronto, the kind of politics of language pronunciation and so on, wh where you've encountered these sorts of um, barriers almost or these moments of awkwardness. Um, but that's that's kind of where I wanted to start. Yeah, well, let me first just say thanks for having me, Scott. Uh, I'm excited to start with this reflection and question that you've brought into our space here. It's not a question I typically get asked nowadays, but I love that you've brought that particular piece of research and writing into the space uh, to begin our conversation and also as a way to kind of work through some of these other issues that are larger, which you're describing in your own reflection about pronunciation and politics, and perhaps also some invitation for me to reflect on that as well. So 
The best way to get into this, I suppose, is to actually think about that particular journal article, which I published as a graduate student writing a paper in a cultural studies graduate seminar. Um, and at the time, I was at the University of New Mexico in Albuquerque, New Mexico, um, studying in the communication and journalism department. So initially, I began my graduate studies at the PhD level in a critical intercultural studies program that was disciplined by communication. And in this particular course, I was really interested in the works of Stuart Hall and Jacques Derrida and other critical theorists that were considering media representations. And at first blush, I wasn't that interested in this particular South Park episode, which is called Going Native. And that's also the, the title of my article um, in the Cultural Studies and Critical Methodologies Journal. I wasn't initially interested in writing about this episode. Um, and really, it stemmed from the fact that I didn't think it was funny. Right. Which, if, if you've read the article and you've watched the show, um, that might come across as odd, or you might have expected that I wouldn't have found it funny but nevertheless, I wasn't really interested in it as a media representation and sort of satire that involved parody um, on the sort of backs of Kanaka Maoli indigeneity and through Haole colonial settlement in Hawaii. And the more I thought about it in relationship with other folks of mine, um, in particular, uh, my best friend Joshua Masagatani, who was the first person to alert me to this episode of South Park, um, he and I got into a lot of great discussions about these moments that I analyze in the article. And so over time, I started thinking about the moments and the representations in um, much more complicated ways. Mm -hmm. And I think that those representations um, spoke to a lot of the politics of representing indigeneity, but also the sort of popular culture take on representing um, cultural appropriation and indigeneity in a settler colonial situation. So it was really nuanced and I wanted to dive into it. And it you know, took one large revision with the um, anonymous reviewers to really get it right. And mm -hmm. so to get it right in that moment that you brought into this, the episode hinges on this really interesting parody that's a satirical critique of colonialism, but the parody itself is white settlers in Hawaii claiming to be native Hawaiians. And essentially I argue that the parody fails, uh, or I should say the, the satirical critique fails because of the construction of the parody as an objection of Hawaiian indigeneity. And so mm -hmm. what that means is, you know, you have essentially uh, Butters, who in the story is like the main character of the show, um, finding out that he's actually quote unquote native Hawaiian. And his father and mother sit him down and talk about how he has roots in Hawaii. And he embarks on this journey to Hawaii to uncover his Hawaiian indigeneity, his community and his land. 
Um, so that's the parody, right? He mm -hmm. is a white kid um, from South Park, Colorado, uh, being told that he's actually native Hawaiian. So the, the representation, which is parodic, is of ideas about what Hawaiian indigeneity is that then get performed by non-indigenous white settlers in Hawaii. So it's really complicated. And I, you know, at first I just wrote it off as um, reducibly ineffective. And then I started thinking about it more as a way to consider how deeply entrenched these ideas about performing indigeneity in Hawaii are and the kinds of regimes of knowledge and truth and power that get produced in that by people every day. So language is one avenue for that. Um, and in the show, um, there are moments where the quote unquote native Hawaiians, and what I mean by that are white settlers that claim to be native Hawaiian, uh, occupying and settling in Hawaii, those quote-unquote native Hawaiians are constantly emphasizing certain Hawaiian olelo Hawaii or Hawaiian language words and terms in ways that are incredibly um, emphatic for trying to get it right. And there's mm -hmm. a moment where I believe it's Butters' father and Butters uh, talk about the pronunciation of Hawaii. And Butter's father says something to the effect of, you know, only Haole's pronounce it Hawaii. And he pronounces it Hawaii, right? So he really enunciates the, the W in the V sound, mm -hmm. which is one way to inflect kind of some knowledge about the language because V can sound like a, a Wa or it can sound like a Va. Um, and so in that moment, it's a authenticating performance of pronunciation and language of an indigenous peoples as a way to separate them from whoever is not native Hawaiian. And so it's, it's a way for, um, on one hand, white settler folks to claim indigeneity through mastery of the language. And uh, of course, it's a parody, right? It's a parody of mastering the language. Mm -hmm. And on the other hand, to delineate and distinguish uh, certain white folks from others who are labeled in the episode colonizers versus white folks that are more like natives. And so there's this really like fascinating kinds of representations that are racialized and gendered that I found in that show, which were really uh, quite fun to analyze. Um, but ultimately the show to me fails to actually land its criticism because in the end, it is the quote unquote native Hawaiians like Butters who decolonize Hawaii from the Navy and from tourists and mm -hmm. uh, the military of the United States. So it still fails um, in that criticism to make fun of white settlers occupying and colonizing Hawaii or other indigenous places where tourism is really large. Yeah. You know, Eve Tuck and Wang Yang, very adamantly and, and now it's very popular and normal to talk about this phrase, say that decolonization is not a metaphor, mm. right? It's material. It's about land, territory, resources. It's not a metaphor. Well, in this piece, I also, building on that, argue that satire is not a metaphor uh, and cannot be used metaphorically for uh, decolonization, especially when the terms and the territory of material decolonization 
are ripped away from indigenous peoples and for white settlers. Yeah, absolutely. And I see all of that operating in this article. And, you know, I did try and watch the episode. Um, I don't think I actually finished it because I've always honestly found South Park and, you know, Trey Parker and Matt Stone's work to be kind of unfunny and often pretty hateful and cynical and, and like uh, often cynical toward care itself, mm-hmm. like consideration and care, <laughs> like that's just uncool to them. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and just like thinking about how this is an episode from a show authored by, you know, uh, white artists. It's like, it's not only authored by white artists. These are like wealthy white artists. Right. These are people who bought, you know, the rights to their show before there was any sense of how platform capitalism would, you know, create this kind of boom, uh, you know, in digital goods. And they're incredibly wealthy. So they're, you know, there's a way in which their reduction of, of indigeneity and identity itself to just an economic possession to the ownership of private property, it just tracks with their with their subjectivity. Right. And I think like that's part of the reason why, as you put it, like the satire fails. It reproduces settler colonialism just almost automatically because, you know, it's it's coming from this particular place, I think. Absolutely. There's, and, and, and beyond that, you say like it also makes Kanaka Maoli a spectral past tense presence. It, it just like roots it as a, in a place in the past, which is another thing that Tuck and Yang talk about in Decolonization is Not a Metaphor is this convenient kind of fantasy um, of of extinction on some level. Like, mm-hmm. and, and the idea, too, is like and, and I see this in the Red Nation podcast. There is like a, a taking seriously of pop culture that also says, like, we don't have to take it too seriously. Like you're right. You're balancing right. that. Um, in the article. So it's like we can use the cartoon to explore a deep history of colonial attempts at erasure and distortion, um, but also see the ways in which like that the, the potential is so profoundly limited because it doesn't really dwell in any serious way with the kind of capitalist roots of so much of that enclosure and erasure. Um, and that's, you know, kind of where I wanted to take things next. I mean, there's, there's more that I could say about uh, the episode, but you know, we don't want to give too much time to Trey Parker and Matt Stone, perhaps. Um, yeah, let's not do that. <laughs> you know, it's like it. But in terms of just like the uh, the language question, I think like so often um, those of us on the left are sort of like a, a little bit in a trap when it comes to talking about, you know, articulating, as Nick Estes says, sort of a structural response to structural problems, you know, because we don't want to necessarily uh, uh, become the thing that we oppose. Like on some level, you want to try and preserve, you know, he writes, Estes writes at the end of Our History is the Future, that we're challenged not just to imagine, but to demand the emancipation of earth from capital. And he says like, for, for the earth to live, capital must die. Mm-hmm. And so like one of the things that you've written about a number of times is the, uh, the fiercely contested 30 meter telescope. Um, you know, which like a consortium of multinational corporate interests have invested a lot of money in, um, uh, as this kind of, you know, uh, astronomy project on, um, uh, the sacred site of, is it, uh, Mauna Kea? Is that in my, yeah, that's correct. Yeah. Um, you know, so this is, this is a, a project that as of today has not gone forward. Um, in your threats of violence piece, you talk about how, quote, the sacred mountain is an extraordinary location because of or it's seen as an extraordinary location in quotes because of the value it adds to the, to knowledge about science, not because it is sacred in itself due mm-hmm. to the fact that it is alive. It is unique. It has a profound place in the culture of the Kanaka Maoli pe- people. 
Um, Kalu Fox uh, just recently appeared alongside Kay Wayne Yang uh, and Teresa Stewart Ambo on the podcast, and they were talking about um, along the same lines how like the thought worlds of indigenous folks are just not a factor in most scientific fields, um, which is often this like self-interested pursuit against that again, like not buying into that specific economy, that language um, you're saying like, there's something about uh, the, the sacred living nature of the land uh, uh, the living connection between land and body that maybe disrupts that, that just greed, that self-interest. Um, and it's something you talk about in your, in, in certainly in the going native piece, right? This, this way in which uh, a belief in private property within settler culture borders on the religious. Um, like, I guess, you know, in terms of trying to articulate an alternative language, you're coming from a very specific place, but you're coming from a place that is very sharp about like the role of global finance and financialization. Um, so like, how do you kind of hold these two things in your head and what gives you faith, you know, as you, as you put it in another podcast that, you know, this project simply won't get built because of this refusal that it, that is so, you know, firmly rooted. Yeah, there's a lot there. And um, thanks for bringing into our conversation, moving away from sort of the media representation and satire and parody of South Park and um, thinking about the actual ongoing struggle in Hawaii for material decolonization and for the defense of our sacred mountain Mauna Kea, but also the defense of our national lands, um, of which the Mauna Kea scientific sort of um, precinct has been created upon, right? So mm -hmm. Mauna Kea is um, not only a mountain that is a place where our ancestors have been buried, um, where Ali'i or our rulers have been um, pilgrimaging to, to engage in various cultural practices, spiritual and religious practices at, um, but have also been um, laid to rest there. Um, and that is also a place where we worship today, uh, not just through pilgrimages, um, but also uh, through ongoing cultural practices um, at different peaks at Mauna Kea, because Mauna Kea um, is unique for its particular many peaks um, mm -hmm. Uh, across the way at Mauna Loa. Mauna Loa is an incredibly large mountain on Hawaii Island that is um, uh, massive in its girth, um, whereas Mauna Kea is very special um, differently, uh, not because perhaps it is as girthy as Mauna Loa, but um, from below sea level to its summit, it's the tallest mountain in the world and unique because of its multiplicity of peaks. And so one of those peaks was literally demolished and raised in order to create this uh, astronomy precinct um, at our mountain, where currently there are already telescopes and observatories. So the 30 meter yeah. telescope would be the 14th observatory on Mauna Kea, and it wouldn't be built at the um, summit region, um, which I'm describing now, it would be built at the northern plateau. And, and there's interesting debate and reason why that was uh, the site chosen. But nevertheless, that's the kind of material landscape of things. But this land, this territory at Mauna Kea is actually a part of the Ahupua'a or watershed, a land division um, named Ko'ohe. In Hawaiian, 
language, ko'ohe translates to the bamboo, or more to the point, the bamboo container for water. Ka, the, ohe, bamboo, or bamboo container, bamboo water container. So why would our kupuna name this ahupua'a, this watershed, this land division, ko'ohe, that includes the peaks and summit of Mauna Kea, a mountain, a geological formation that folks typically regard as geological and not important for hydrology and water. Well, it's because they knew and practiced relationships to Mauna Kea that were in reverence of the fact that Mauna Kea was a significant site for collecting water. There is an alpine lake at Mauna Kea that our ali'i would pilgrimage to visit and to pray to mm -hmm. and pray with to celebrate the deities that exist in that space, which is regarded as a vau akua, a zone for the akua, a zone for our deities, right? So there are different elemental forces um, that are representing the physical manifestations of particular deities as we know them. And so our ali'i, um, even our people today, we gather in these places to pay homage and respect and offer gifts of our voices, um, of dance, of actual makana and ho'okupu or formal ritual offerings um, to these deities, to these uh, bodies of water and geological formations um, because they mean something important to us and because we hope to balance our relationships with them and continue to propagate their value and importance, not for extraction and development and commodification, um, but for the entire social ecology of Hawaii Island. Because underneath Mauna Kea is a incredibly important water aquifer and water system that feeds literally all the ecological existence on that island, um, human and otherwise. And that also means Kanaka Maoli and otherwise. So Ko'ohe in this kind of cultural context um, is significantly important in a different way than science astronomers and their industries, um, which are abetted by the state and its agents like the police, the way that they see the importance and value of this place. But I want to, before transitioning and thinking about that, mm -hmm. um, you know, I do want to say that also alternatively, the sort of jurisdictional issue of the territory at Mauna Kea is super important in Ko'ohe because Ko'ohe is actually a part of the crown lands of the Hawaiian Kingdom's government, which were a part of a national land grouping that in the mid-19th century, the Hawaiian Kingdom's government actually created a it, it's a hybrid private property system wherein lands that were among the national lands of the Hawaiian kingdom all people including uh, the rulers of the kingdom the um, the kind of like administrators of the kingdom law the konohiki those who kind of watched over these lands on behalf of 
the kingdom and for the benefit of the Makai Nana or um, common citizens and people, but also common citizens and people. So three classes of people, right? The government rulers, the land administrators, and the people had an undivided interest in all of these national lands, undivided. And it has never been relinquished. And in 1993, Bill Clinton signed a law, a public law, called the Apology Resolution nowadays, which specifically states that the indigenous people of Hawaii have never relinquished their national sovereignty over their lands. Well, those lands include the lands at Mauna Kea in Ka'ohe, because those lands are a part of the inventory of national lands, which Kanaka Maoli and the government have never relinquished our sovereign right and jurisdiction to. So this is a place that is incredibly contested on the basis of territorial jurisdiction. Mm -hmm. The state of Hawaii has attempted to bureaucratize that jurisdiction to the nth degree to protect itself, not just in that space, but to protect all of the public land in Hawaii because all of the public land in Hawaii was taken from the Hawaiian kingdom's government and that was the national lands of the Hawaiian kingdom. And so to relinquish its supposed authority over this territory is in effect to create a standard and precedent for the reoccupation and the re-territorialization of Kanaka Maoli sovereign jurisdiction in all public lands. That includes lands that the state leases to the U.S. military for army training grounds and for its naval command. So that's really important because this is indeed linked up to not just settler colonial occupation in Hawaii, which is ongoing, and the way the settler state attempts to perform its own territorial sovereignty in abjection of Kanaka Maoli assertions of it, like even the blockade and reoccupation to stop TMT. But it's also linked up to the ways in which the military-industrial military complex in Hawaii has propagated and has become so pervasive that to question the state's jurisdiction over public lands is to throw into stark relief the ability of the U.S. nation-state to secure itself in the Pacific and to monitor and surveil its enemies like China. Mm -hmm. But of course, this is on, on the backs of a kind of reproduction of the military occupation of Hawaii, which go takes us back in time to the late 19th century when the U.S. Navy, who is currently polluting the water system on Oahu because of many leaks of its Red Hill fuel, bulk fuel storage facility in Red Hill or Kapukaki on Oahu Island, right? So right now it's contaminating uh, water for a majority of Oahu uh, residents because of where it's located and the water system there. But in the late 19th century, it was the U.S. Navy and a deployment of Marines that backed a white supremacist capitalist oligarchy's overthrow, illegal overthrow of the Hawaiian kingdom. So all these things are connected, even when we talk about TMT. 
And mm -hmm. one of the things that is super interesting to get into conversations with a, with astronomers about in particular is like, they're like, why does this matter to us? Well, right. my, my response is it, it should damn well matter to you because your capital, your infrastructure, your data collection, your, you know, um, academic accumulation of capital is only possible because of this assemblage of violence that actively disassociates itself from its historical manifestation and from its ongoing actualization of violence against not just Mauna Kea, not just our deities, but to Kanaka Maoli and to the environment in general. Uh, last month, um, a group of French astronomers released a study that concluded based on active astronomy research that utilized ground-based observatories and space missions for astronomical knowledge production, that the astronomy research industry has a carbon footprint of 20 million tons, and that is equivalent to a small country's carbon footprint like Estonia. And so their conclusion was astronomy constructions of uh, uh, ground-based observatories and space missions needs to slow down mm -hmm. in order to stave off the code red for humanity's anthropogenic climate crisis. How ironic, because Kanaka Maoli are the ones that have slowed down astronomy industry development at Mauna Kea. And yet here we are in 2022 with astronomers and an industry recommending that to themselves, they must slow down to mm. save the world and to protect the environment. When the fact of the matter is too, and I'll end here, you know, the 30 meter telescope is highly valued and touted because of its scientific capabilities in exoplanet research. Exoplanet research partly is a scientific research study of planets outside of our solar system that humans could one day settle and inhabit. So you're telling me the 30 meter telescope, which is part and parcel of this carbon footprint that is being recommended by astronomers to slow down, is actually connected to space colonization. That is what's happening. And that is the value that is more important than the way that Kanaka Mauli have and will continue to value Mauna Kea. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no. And I mean, uh, so many things that I'd like to kind of uh, pick up uh, uh, there, you know, like, I'm, I'm, first of all, just so happy that you were, you know, that you're, you know, open to expanding on the significance of this struggle, and connecting it to specific historical moments like this 1993 apology resolution, which you say in your uh, interview in Brown Political Review, you know, you say, I'm not one for accepting apologies at face value, but I am one for paying attention to legal rhetoric. If we mm -hmm. know, if we, you know, you say, if we know that uh, the native Hawaiian people have never relinquished sovereignty over their national lands and it's enshrined in the uh, U.S. political order, like those things should have ramifications. Like there ought to yeah. be some, you know, implication there. And, and what's so like troubling is like, you know, I was, I was looking at um, the kind of fallout from one particular Supreme, you know, uh, a Supreme Court decision that said, you know, there's already so much devastation on Mount, mm, Mount Akea mm -hmm, mm -hmm. that one more telescope doesn't matter. 
right? Yeah. And there was one dissenting voice that said, like, that is yeah. an absurd position to mm-hmm. say that because there's been so much devastation, why not allow there, you know, allow there to be more ignores the fact that we are at the brink of mm-hmm. like fatal collapse, right? Like, yep. and this is, I think, where I wanted to bring in um, Harsha Walia's important book, Border and Rule. There's a lot in that book. Um, about this particular moment where like some of these aspirational techno fantasies um, are getting in the way of slowing down, which is mm-hmm. the only way out like a degrowth deceleration politics. It seems to me yeah. is like, I mean, what else, you know, what else can possibly uh, alleviate the sort of, you know, burden and the scarring of, of the earth than that in, in, mm-hmm. in place of that, we have, as she puts it, uh, greenwashed colonialism. Right. Mm-hmm. She says land grabbing in today's warming world is intensifying through greenwashed colonialism, which like astronomy is this like aspirational kind of charismatic, shiny mm-hmm. uh, techno answer to um, the climate catastrophe. But she says, like, um, you know, it, in her book, land grabbing conservation efforts, erasing indigenous jurisdiction and perpetuating colonial terra nullius has become now like the new order. And she says mm-hmm. in, in the face of that decarbonizing would necessarily require demilitarization, decarceration, and decolonization because the climate crisis is mm-hmm. a symptom and not the cause of mm-hmm. our ex- existential crisis. So we simply can't uh, keep developing our way out of this. And so she's, right. she's like quite clear that indigenous liberation, quote, uh, uh, indigenous, indigenous liberation struggles are, quote, um, the strongest and longest front lines resisting mm-hmm. commodification and degradation of land and water. And it just seems to me like the question is like, how do you um, shift public consciousness away from this sort of, you know, seductive focus on, you know, carbon neutral technologies, carbon capture and storage and, and, you know, reckon with the, for example, climate destroying nature of like agribusiness, for example, you know, or greenwashed colonialism. Like these are forms of violence that in some cases, like as you've written about, require actual violent intervention by the state in order to uh, secure, right? Like, mm-hmm. so this is just, I mean, like it, it, we're seeing this in Canada where you, you're teaching now. It's certainly mm-hmm. the case uh, um, that water protectors are, you know, land protectors are being criminalized and attacked uh, in their attempts to care for the earth. Um, and and I just wonder, like, this is a question I think that maybe too often get gets asked um, when it comes to these sorts of struggles, but do you believe that we're at a point where the proof of settler violence is is so inarguable that it's like it's causing some kind of shift? Or do you feel like, for example, like, you know, images of these sorts of violent crackdowns that perpetuate land grabs are just not actually able to infiltrate the mainstream? And how do you like understand your own role as a communicator in that specific struggle to like make visible these kind these kinds of violence? Yeah, this is a really, really good question. Um, and I appreciate its capaciousness. You know, I want to kind of start with a, a couple things and then back into this larger question. Um, and the first is that I believe wholeheartedly that the astronomy industry is well equipped and intelligent enough to follow important recommendations for decarbonizing, for in- investing in 
renewable energy that can power their observatories and their um, space missions and things of that nature. You know, where I'm located in political science um, at the University of Toronto is literally a block or two away from the Department of Astronomy and Astrophysics. And I've spent mm. my first three years here at the University of Toronto doing my due diligence in good faith to talk upon invitation, for the most part, to astronomers in the University of Toronto's Department of Astronomy and Astrophysics, to folks that are faculty there that have other capacities that work sort of nationally on astronomy prioritizations with things like the long range plan, which is the Canadian equivalent to the U.S. decadal report that sets priorities for astronomy research uh, for a decade, for the next 10 years. Um, and also at the federal level, um, I've actually engaged with the National Research Council of Canada. Um, I met with representatives um, from the National Research Council in person right before COVID-19 broke out in 2020. Um, and so that's all to say I've done my due diligence. And these were incredibly hostile spaces. And right. nevertheless, you know, I showed up um, for a variety of reasons. But I did what was necessary given my location, given my um, sort of leveraging and status as a faculty member here at the University of Toronto, um, but also as an expert in not just TMT and Mauna Kea, but um, indigenous politics in Hawaii and globally, and someone that was a participant in the blockade to stop TMT from being built in 2019. And so I've continued this work for three years and, you know, it's, it's, it's been pretty hard. And I understand that um, there is a sort of circuit, if you will, that, uh, how do I say this, that I was uh, paraded around in, um, in such a way that could be perceived as, you know, respectable consultation that follows different legal uh, processes and political practices in Canada because of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission of Canada and its reporting in 2015. You know, but at the end of this, on the other side, um, I can say with certainty that you know, my colleagues think less of me as a scientist, as a colleague, as a person, um, because of my stance on the 30-meter telescope. Um, and I think that's really important because, you know, as much as I can say that um, I have a genealogical connection to the mountain, um, I'm Kanaka Maoli, Kanaka Oivi, um, I have done research on this political struggle and issues related to settler colonialism and capital in Hawaii. You know, as much as I can say all of this um, and establish that idea that there is a sacred reverence and value that Kanaka Maoli in our cosmological ways of being and origins continue to practice today, which is being desecrated by these sorts of projects by astronomers that live thousands of miles away and might never step foot at Mauna Kea. Mm -hmm. And the flip side of that is something uh, actually, um, which I, I finally got around to watching um, Neil deGrasse Tyson's interview on the Seth Rogen, not Seth Rogen, um, Joe Rogan, Joe Rogan <laughs> yeah. show. Yeah. I finally got around to watching it. Um, uh, Joe Rogan asks, um, 
Neil deGrasse Tyson what he thinks about the, you know, quote unquote protests in Hawaii against this telescope mm. observatory. And, you know, he, he does a really interesting thing of suggesting that, um, you know, quote unquote, the natives should uh, have a vote to determine whether or not this project should be built and will respect the vote. And that's their mm. vote. Um, but also, you know, that kind of offers this interesting, like, legal smokescreen for what I find to be the political, the kind of subjectiveness of the political agenda that astronomers and scientists have with the 30 meter telescope. Mm -hmm. So he ends this conversation with um, Rogan by saying that, you know, as much as the natives, and he kept saying the natives, the natives, the natives, which I thought mm -hmm. was interesting, but um, nevertheless, he kept, you know, refraining that indigenous people in Hawaii and elsewhere, you know, have like ideas about the sacred and religion and um, their origins in the, you know, kind of cosmological way. Um, and I forget exactly how he phrases it, but he says something to the effect of astrophysicists, you know, find their work sacred and that their work in a sense is even more sacred. And, you know, I just found that really interesting and kind of funny because like in codified law in the state of Hawaii, native Hawaiians have a constitutionally protected right to practice cultural traditions and customs and astronomers do not. Mm. Nevertheless, the state is more interested in allowing astronomers to do so than native Hawaiians. So why, why would that be the case? Well, it's because there is money involved. It's because astronomy industry in Hawaii began to develop because of a uh, sort of like post-hurricane in the late 60s and early 70s um, deficit in the state economy. And so um, there was a kind of call to the scientific community and astronomers to come to Hawaii and develop astronomy, um, partially because of the funding from governments like Canada um, and also universities where researchers can apply for grants. And so this is what you know my colleague Iokepa Kasumbo Salazar refers to as the big money science of astronomy at Mauna Kea, but also because of tourism. Mm. So there are like tourist adventures that folks can pay for when visiting Hawaii Island to do stargazing overnight trips at Mauna Kea to tour the observatories and telescopes. And so mm -hmm. this industry is still wrapped up in like these really pernicious circuits of what I would refer to as, you know, settler colonial capitalism. Um, and also kinds of the, the larger global tourist industry. Mm -hmm. And, you know, this is an industry that is absolutely unsustainable for the islands of Hawaii. We saw this when the pandemic forced the state government to shut down tourism. I think it was from like March, maybe April 2020 until October, where... Um, tourism declined drastically. And as soon as the state opened for tourism, you know, the number of tourists that were flying to Hawaii during a pandemic were actually, it was more than years in the past. And why is that, right? Why is that? Because of these tropes about Hawaii as a multicultural 
you know, melting pot and this paradise place, this sort of respite from, you know, civilization. Mm -hmm. And yet, you know, a part of the United States and America, therefore easier for, you know, U.S. citizens to travel to, but still um, accessible enough for Japanese tourists to travel to. Um, and what we saw was the actual restoration of bays, of hillsides and mountains in that short period from March to like October, that was just something that I had never experienced before. And unfortunately, I was only able to see it in like videos and pictures of like Honolulu Harbor, you know, coming back mm -hmm. to what it once was um, previous to this massive tourist industry, you know, blotting out the reefs, the coral and the sand of Waikiki, for instance, right? The Mecca of tourism in Hawaii, you know, no one was there for months or, or there were very few people there. You know, we saw bays like Hanauma Bay, which is a sensitive ecological uh, space for its, its coral reefs, its fish, uh, and much more. We saw it heal. Mm. And as soon as the state reopened tourism, immediately that healing process stopped. Mm -hmm. And that process of restoration um, began to revert back to one of degradation. Um, and so the state isn't invested in, you know, decarbonization insofar as it's more invested in military and tourism. And uh, I think it's safe to say astronomy industry development. That's why you get court decisions where the Supreme Court of the state of Hawaii literally pens a decision that says it's okay to continue developing a ecologically sensitive site in a conservation district because it has been so affected and harmed already that more development is justifiable. And, and so, so the, the opposing uh, view was by uh, Justice Wilson, who, as you put it really well, you know, said this is a degradation principle that contravenes environmental law. Insofar as, you know, it's kind of analogized to, to thinking that, you know, if a person has been so violated, so harmed by another, that it's okay to continue harming them. You know, why do we even have to have these like human analogies to get environmental destruction and ecocide to stick in law or in policy or in politics? Why can't we not just as humans understand that leveling peaks of mountains is harmful, is desecration, is a kind of genocide that we all know at this point is globally a important reality. Yeah, no, I think like it's about how self-interest is like, it's like the sine qua non. It's the thing that is somehow foundational to settler cosmology. Right. And I hear DeGrasse Tyson sort of reinforcing that when he says like, you know, astronomers, for them, the science itself is sacred. It's just, it's more or less self-interest is, is what he's communicating. Mm -hmm. And this is a guy who has a master class, like literally one of these branded master right. classes right. in scientific communication. 
And, and I realized like it is a course in PR and persuasion. Ultimately, mm. what he's saying is that you have to, you know, like modulate your message for the specific podcast or TV show or whatever product that you're producing. There's no integrity there. There's no authenticity there. Mm. And, and really in some sense, it's like the context here that he's talking about is one where tourism is, is the fundamental part of the business plan. That's not, that's not sacred. Mm. All of those aspirational goals are really secondary to uh, capital. Um, and so, mm. I, and, but I, I so kind of respect the way in which your work and what you were just saying, um, you know, communicates a, a, a passion for this like glimpse of what could be in the absence of that. Like, it's not this hopeless thing. It's, it's like you get a taste of the resurgence of what is truly sacred in the absence of just that kind of crass self-interest. Mm-hmm. And the thing that, you know, uh, uh, seems to be a, a, a theme that echoes across a lot of what you've written is this idea of, um, you know, historical tradition of resistance that you feel responsible to, resistance to American imperialism, to militarism. Um, and you, you're talking about, it seems, a ref, like refusal itself as a paradigm of contemporary indigenous relationality on some level, like an internationalism where, mm-hmm. you know, the apologetic state, as you put it, is rejected with just a flat no, where reconciliation is replaced with incommensurability and antagonism that says like mm-hmm. even notions of social justice and de- democracy, these things that get ev- invoked in that DeGrasse Tyson sort of comment that, you know, you just have a vote and then the vote determines it. Even those things, while aspirational, may be incommensurable with indigenous life worlds. Right. It's a pointed refusal that rejects subservience to the U.S. itself. Mm-hmm. And that all feels more pitched in the context of the climate catastrophe as well. Like refusal can mean liberation for non-human life, for the land itself. Um, and this like it connects directly to uh, an essay that for me has been like, I just can't stop thinking about it. It's a short essay by Eve Tuck and, and Wayne Yang called Unbecoming Claims um, that is mostly about like the politics of the settler university. Mm. But one of the things they say in that, es- in that essay is that refusal, quote, is a generative stance, not just a no, but a starting place for other qualitative analyses and interpretations of data. Right. Refusal is not just a no, it is a performance of that, of that no. Could you speak to like how you understand refusal as just like a clear minded and morally responsible way of approaching like these convoluted topics? Yeah, I love this question. Um, You know, so first, the uh, paraphrasing and quoting that you were doing of my writing was from um, a piece that I wrote called Ole is Our Refusal. Mm -hmm. Um, But I've also used that same paraphrasing um, or phrasing, I suppose, in uh, a piece that I'm publishing for a um, collected uh, edition uh, of a book that's going to be coming out in Duke University Press um, called Settler States and Indigenous Presences. And it's a book um, edited by um, my colleagues, uh, uh, um, Renee and Kristen, and it's something that we've been working on for years at this point. Right. But um, it's a larger essay on the, the smaller piece, which is in the book Detours, A Decolonial Guide to Hawaii. Amazing book. Yeah, 
absolutely fantastic book. You know, shout out to Hoku Aikau and Bernadette Gonzalez for um, organizing us all and getting something really um, important and beautiful out there in the world with Duke as well. But, you know, so the analysis that I'm doing about refusal in that work and that research is regarding federal recognition for Native Hawaiians. And so there, there's a lot I could say about it, but I'll just try to be really brief. Um, and I also wrote something relatively recent. Well, I guess it was about a year ago now in The Guardian about federal a new sort of like revamping up of federal recognition mm-hmm. um, because of some of the um, changing in uh, Congress, especially in the Senate and um, in the House. Um, so there have been you know, attempts over more than a decade at this point to create a new legal pathway for the United States federal government to acknowledge formally um, a reorganized Native Hawaiian governing entity. Um, This uh, is a big part of my research agenda to write about federal recognition, and I do it really in the kind of spirit of Yellow Knives Dene scholar Glenn Coulthard's work on the colonial politics of recognition. Um, and how he writes about it in Red Skin, White Masks, his book from um, earlier in the 2010s. So right now, there is a uh, rule on the books in the um, federal code that um, created a new legal pathway for Native Hawaiians to be um, formally acknowledged and recognized like a tribal government. Okay? Um, That's, you know, the federal recognition that I'm talking about. Um, It was a battle... Um, between 2014 and 2016 with the Native Hawaiian community and the Department of the Interior. Um, The Department of Interior proposed this rule, sought feedback, um, collected oral and written feedback. And in 2014, um, overwhelmingly, more than 95% of Kanaka Maoli that publicly and orally testified to the Department of the Interior about this proposed rule that could federally recognize us said no, right? Mm-hmm. Flat out rejection, no. And and also it just was so clear um, and principled as you were kind of describing earlier, even in our own language, you know, there were five specific questions that were asked and then there were like 19 secondary uh, minor questions that were asked in this advance notice for proposed rulemaking. And, you know, in some cases, Kanaka Maoli were just like, aole, 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 aole to all of these questions. Mm. And then in other cases, Kanaka were like, we had two weeks to prepare for you to come here to Hawaii. Like, how dare you even just insert yourself into our community without giving us time to prepare, without giving us adequate space to gather, uh, for not giving us adequate time to testify, you know? And so even with that limited kind of sense of capacity that was totally crafted on their part, you know, Kanaka Maoli also addressed the sub-19 questions as well and said no um, in a very principled way. And so I write about that as a kind of Kanaka Maoli practice of refusal, this kind of principled stance where we as a community convene in these spaces um, and tether ourselves to each other via our stories, our mo'olelo, of resistance, our, our sort of genealogical um, kinship and relationship to one another that has been, you know, over time reiterated because our kupuna in the 19th century said aole and no 
to U.S. annexation. And we have proof and evidence, and we see our kupuna's names, and we see who also in our community recalls those same stories as the sort of fertile ground to launch those refusals of uh, incorporation. Because federal recognition for Native Hawaiians would be essentially a final nail in the coffin for the settlement of Hawaii as an incorporated um, archipelago into the United States. Because basically, the U.S. sees Hawaii as geopolitically incorporated into the U.S. However, the status of Native Hawaiians as a part of the U.S.'s sort of federal Indian law and policy is uh, more ambiguous. And so there's a biopolitical need to settle that status for an indigenous population, which isn't even in America, which isn't even in, you know, the continental United States. Mm -hmm. um, although the U.S. claims Hawaii as its own, of course, for military purposes, especially. So, you know, in 2014, 95% of Kanaka that testified said no. But it was also this affirmative, generative process of reestablishing our relationships to our kupuna who signed the Ku'e petitions, which is this large petition drive that occurred in the late 1900s, where more than 40,000 of our people, and at the time, um, there were like 45, 50,000 Native Hawaiians, so it was like an overwhelming majority of Native Hawaiians, signed these petitions saying no to annexation. And there were a group of Hawaiians and non-Hawaiians that took those petitions to uh, Congress and showed them and talked to U.S. senators um, in the year 1897. And a treaty of annexation was on the table to be voted on because of those petitions and because of the advocacy of this group that went to Senate and literally relayed the message to senators that Kanaka refused to be a part of the United States, refused to be annexed by the U.S., that treaty of annexation failed in the Senate. It failed to be ratified. A treaty of annexation does not exist to incorporate Hawaii into the United States. Mm -hmm. And so only the next year in 1898 did William L. McKinley, because of the Spanish-American War, needing a coaling station in the Pacific to transport troops to Guam and the Philippines, only then did he get a joint resolution passed by Congress to annex Hawaii. That's why we call the annexation of Hawaii illegal, because it was not a ratified treaty between the Hawaiian Kingdom's government and the U.S. federal government. Mm -hmm. Federal recognition could, according to Chamorro scholar Julian Aguan, who does who has written like really prolifically about federal recognition and Hawaiian sovereignty, federal recognition of a reorganized Native Hawaiian governing entity could be the, as he writes, red carpet that the thief rolls out to finally steal from your house. And so that, that theft uh, is what he says is like an international possibly recognition that Hawaiians have acquiesced to the U.S. So federal recognition is this really complicated um, political process and legal process that's typically seen as positive, right? Like mm -hmm. it's good to have self-governance. It's good to have um, 
recognition of self-determination and you know sovereignty over resources and land. But get this, the rule on the books, which is, Hawaiians know this, right? Which is why we said no. The rule on the books wouldn't give us a land base, so we wouldn't have something akin to um, a reservation, and it would give no public land that the state holds back to Native Hawaiians, right? So Mauna Kea, that land wouldn't be allocated to a new Hawaiian government. It would still be in, under control by the state of Hawaii. So we actually wouldn't have territorial jurisdiction over that land that some people claim we could. And lastly, it would, the rule, disallow us from having the Department of the Interior and the federal government take land into trust for our political entity, which is one of the most significant rights afforded to tribal governments in U.S. federal Indian law and policy. So basically, we would be recognized as a self-governing entity with no land back, none. Mm -hmm. And we know that, and we said no to that. And in saying no, we affirmed our rights to our land that do not need to be made legible in accordance with the colonial politics of recognition. So, you know, that that's what I was writing about and that refusal. But there's so much more to say about, you know, the affirmative qualities of, of refusal. And um, there's so much to say about that in even sort of the context of opposition against 30 meter telescope. You know, right now, um, it's, it's, it's a total social fact that there is no free prior informed consent for the 30 meter telescope project by Native Hawaiians. In 2019, the UN Committee on the Elimination of Racial Discrimination put a advanced uh, notice on the state of Hawaii and the United States for the possibility of violating um, free prior informed consent principles. Um, that was 2019. It's 2022. And it's um, my understanding in my research that I've done that Canada is also doing something very similar. Mm. And so I've been investigating um, Canadian astronomical reports about representations of, of whether or not Native Hawaiians consent to this project. And in 2019, a October 2019 report um, to the Canadian constituents of astronomy stated that consent had been obtained by Native Hawaiians for the project because of an Office of Hawaiian Affairs resolution from 2009, right, 10 years mm -hmm. before, that approved the siding of Mauna Kea for the Northern Plateau. So that resolution is the primary uh, document that the Canadian astronomy community was conveying to their constituents that consent had been obtained. So they recognized, and I'll wrap up with this, they recognized that there was an affirmation of the sighting by the Office of Hawaiian Affairs and that the Office of Hawaiian Affairs was representative of Native Hawaiians as a political body and was legitimate to provide that consent. Okay. Well, they completely omitted in this report the fact that in 2015, the Office of Hawaiian Affairs passed another resolution that rescinded its support of TNT at the Northern Plateau. Right? What does it mean when consent for something like a development project changes? Well, upon getting word of this, the Office of Hawaiian Affairs publicly corrected the Canadian astronomical community for this report. 
in mm-hmm. public, stating that they misrepresented their position. So upon receiving that public correction, this particular committee called CATAC, which is comprised of both academic and professional astronomy um, leaders and representatives, um, noted that because the report had, quote unquote, a limited scope, they didn't feel the need to include the 2015 resolution by OHA that rescinded support. So on one hand, there's an attempt to manufacture consent in 2019 by saying the Office of Wine Affairs currently consents and supports this project. And on the other hand, the report completely omits the fact that in 2015, they rescinded support, right? They, They refused to continue supporting the project. And their subsequent acknowledgement of the fact that they knew to me is an admission of guilt yeah yeah of attempting to manufacture consent and with its associated violations in uh the un declaration on the rights of indigenous peoples regarding consent development there's also another violation that could be had here and that's of, of propaganda influencing one community the canadian astronomy community about an indigenous community's consent for a project yeah you know, these are nefarious violations of international principles um, that are violations against indigenous people's rights. And so as much as the Canadian astronomy community believes perhaps that it respects indigenous peoples in an era of reconciliation and is unwilling to pursue a project without indigenous people's consent, they're actively attempting to manufacture it. And when being called out for it are simply downplaying their actions and their efforts. So to me, what this smacks of is even a refusal to consent, right? Audra Simpson, Mohawk scholars, you know, uh, Mohawk Interruptus, her book is fantastic for thinking about refusal, but she also has a great piece called Consent's Refusal, um, right? The refusal to consent to the 30-meter telescope is a kind of affirming process in my mind to remind folks that consent is not simply transactional or eventful. It's more of a quasi-event. It's a process. And that's an affirming thing to me, right? Boundaries are affirming, I believe. Yeah. And they kind of invoke different responsibilities and relationships. Well, the truth is that, you know, that is just totally not registered in in this particular struggle. And you know, for three years, I've been going around saying that Kanaka Maoli don't consent. You know, there's a really great poll that was done um, by some HP researchers, which found with a population size of a thousand people, a thousand Native Hawaiians in their survey, um, 88% of those Native Hawaiians surveyed do not support building TMT at Mauna Kea. It's a total social fact that there is no free prior informed consent, and it's been communicated that there is a refusal to consent. And that creates a process also of building different kinds of relationships outside of this transactional nature. Mm -hmm. And nevertheless, it has been completely uh, sublimated. And it is because of the universality in astronomy's alleged sacred nature. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and it sounds like, you know, I, I like this idea that boundaries not borders, but boundaries are affirming um, because it's it's about, I think, trying to 
um, you know, make uh, make present, make you know, felt the nature of these boundaries that you know you you clearly take seriously the responsibility of doing that, like to make public these these facts in order to uh, make the public aware of these facts, but also to make the public as such. Like, yeah, I think you know we we presuppose the public as this kind of like this figure, this thing that somehow exists, but it only comes into being when I think when there are these acts of making uh, um, uh, previously untold truths public in some ways, like it's, it's that there's a, there's a real power to that in terms of countering these international networks of like racial capital um, that usually uh, do function by this form of propaganda, as you put it, like Mm -hmm. Canada itself has this narrative of the nation that says, as, as Harsha Walia again puts it in Border and Rule, it's a liberal, peacekeeping, multicultural nation. It's praised around the world for these things. Right. Um, and she says, contrary to that popular perception, the country exports violence, not generosity. Mm. Right. Like, and she goes through the ways in which that's that's historically been the case. Like Canada's model for spatial confinement, she says, of indigenous people through the reserve and past system was adopted by apartheid South Africa mm-hmm. and later imported by Israel. Mm-hmm. You know, Canada spearheaded the imperialist UN responsibility to protect doctrine. All of these things are not part of the narrative, but if you make them public, you make a different kind of public possible, I think. Yeah. Uh, one that is more resistant, you know? And uh, you also invoked um, Glenn Coulthard's work. I wanted to mention, you know, like he, he talks about how Indigenous land dispossession is still the dominant structure enabling Canadian state formation. Like there are almost 2,300 reserves in Canada, but they're deliberately kind of small and fragmented. Um, you know, they they account for only 0.28% of the land base. That is a obvious like form of uh, uh, settler occupation that, you know, you have to try and frame in, in certain ways. Mm-hmm. And I guess I wanted to ask you, like, you know, you you teach a course in land and indi- indigenous politics at U of T. Um, and the description of the course on your website tells us that, quote, global indigenous land struggles are constituted through and cultivate relationships between indigenous peoples, environmental elements, and more than human subjects. Could you speak to like just what it has felt like in some ways to teach in a Canadian institution like U of T and what your approach to teaching these complex uh, uh, questions is, I mean, is it particularly text heavy, you know, how do you go about giving students the vocabulary for talking about something like geontologies, for example, or the sacredness of specific sites? Like, can that be done in a classroom? And are you still kind of trying to figure out how to do it? Yeah, this is another great question. Do I believe that in a classroom space, um, in a Canadian university like U of T, you can teach uh, students, undergrad and graduate students, what indigenous conceptions of relationality, ecology, and sacredness are completely? No. I'm not going to fool myself and say yes. However, my pedagogical standpoint is first and foremost to, especially as a, you know indigenous person that is not native to these territories, um, to teach my students about settler colonialism, racial capitalism, and extractive capital. Um, That is my modus operandi in all the classes that I teach. And I teach all classes in indigenous politics. Um, The first class I taught was uh, titled, and I'm changing this course for the next upcoming year, but it was titled Truth, Reconciliation, and Settler Colonialism. Um, You know, 
I get asked to talk about the dish with one spoon treaty and like Anishinaabe Moen and like Anishinaabe like worldview. I'm Kanaka Maoli. You know, that is not an ethical practice that I want to take up. Um, despite as much reading as I can do, despite as much relationship I can be in, despite, you know, whatever kinds of solidarity I can form, indigenous politics is particular. It it can't just be abstract. And this is what's so interesting about indigeneity itself as a um, international principle, political status, and classification um, globally. It, it, is, it is an abstraction of particularity. And at the university level, the incorporation of indigenous politics in that regard, you know, unfortunately walks this really fine tightrope of um, identity politics versus um, something else. And I think it's important to walk the tightrope, but I don't think that generalizing across indigenous political orders based on particular protocols by particular communities and nations and what can be said, what can be taught, what can be talked about is necessarily the project of teaching indigenous politics in general, whether it's inside universities or beyond. Um, and so that's kind of like my pedagogy in teaching these sorts of classes. So in land and indigenous politics, you know, we begin with geont geontologies by Elizabeth Pavanelli. And we begin with Macarena Gomez Beres's work on the extractive zones. Because I'm teaching students these really important, meaningful analytics of geontology and of uh, social ecology as a framework to think about land-based struggles and how indigenous peoples in land-based struggles, like at Mauna Kea, like at Standing Rock, like at Wet'suwet'en, mm -hmm. are not just protecting the environment in some flat capacity, like in environmentalist discourse, but are actually protecting their relatives, like Mauna Kea. But then again, how do you convey to non-Kanaka Maoli in Toronto, in what is now called Canada, what that means? You know, you, you can't fully. And I'm okay with that. Mm -hmm. um, I, I, I don't know if I believe that it should be fully taught so that students, you know, absolutely can master what the sacred means in Hawaii. Um, and that's why I think it's actually more important to kind of start with these analytics of geontology and social ecology to provide a really important framework for critical thinking and for their own research as well, right? Mm -hmm. And certainly there are indigenous students of mine who are more experts in some of these struggles than I am because they come from these places. These are their relatives, right? These are their social ecological relatives. Um, and I think that that's important too. You know, this is not a kind of pedagogy that's top down and universal and totalizing. This is a flexible pedagogy to indigenous politics that navigates this tightrope of identity politics and 
sort of like global forms of dispossession and counter dispossession. I really vibe with uh, critical theorist Rob Nichols' book, Theft is Property, in th- sort of thinking about the category of dispossession um, as a category that has been sort of experienced across time and space by indigenous peoples um, that are experts in that experience collectively and have expertly written about it and also resisted it through what he calls, you know, these sort of like counter dispossession moves. Um, and, And that's what I teach my students is thinking about, you know, these really interconnected histories and ongoing realities of colonial domination and um, it's sort of tethering to capitalist modes of production and extractivism, um, but also these sort of like creative um, thoughts and actions and movements of counter dispossession, right? What if we thought about indigenous politics less as just the political study of indigenous people, Mm -hmm. like it's somehow (laughs) like anthropology, Um, and more about the study of these global circuits of colonial capitalism and its modern incarnations of settler colonialism, as well as the intelligence and brilliance of those who have been subjected to it disproportionately and their movements to stop dispossession and to stop these sort of global land grabs that are linked up to, right, as we talked previously, causing, right, through industrialization, causing this climate disaster and emergency that we're in. Mm. You know, those are the kinds of things that I, I, I try to bring to, especially the land and indigenous politics class. Yeah, no, and it sounds like you're working through it, but you've uh, you've reached a point where you can negotiate um, the kind of demands of being a teacher, which is like in the in the university, the idea so often is to impart a kind of mastery, right? Julieta Singh right. has that book, Unthinking Mastery, this attempt to like rewrite that um, and say like, no, actually, uh, students themselves might be experts in dispossession, as you put it. They might be able to impart a certain kind of expertise themselves. And so like, it comes back for me to this question of refusal and Tuck and Yang's uh, article, Unbecoming Claims, because the fundamental thing they reject is the 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 way in which like codification depoliticizes, de-radicalizes any kind of research. And right. so what they say in that article is, uh, quote, the, the refusal stance is an attribute of objecting objects, like the object of the gaze objecting. And it is a choice, a code of ethics, a stance to be assumed for refusing researchers, researchers who refuse. Hmm. And so, like, I hear you kind of like trying to figure out a way to um, balance some of these responsibilities that you might have to impart knowledge with um, a different kind of, you know, commitment to transformation. Like you, you've also talked about this kind of feeling of responsibility itself uh, being shaken from a hazy slumber by this responsibility to join with like generations of resistance movements and how that feeling of responsibility is like also a source of like liberation of, of exhilaration and that to me is fundamentally different from you know a neoliberal subjectivity which is so often about mastery mm-hmm. and certainly about being like liberated really from social responsibility yeah um so anyway i uh i'll let you go but i i can't tell you how much i appreciate you making the time it's it's amazing to be able to talk to you about these things yeah thanks for having me scott this was a really powerful conversation to have. So I appreciate it.